Well, this morning we're going to continue the series we started a couple weeks ago, looking at the importance of the church. And let me just remind you, we started out talking about the importance of the church to God. God created the church. We didn't create the church. God designed the church. God established the church. And he intends for the church to be the centerpiece of his work on the earth. And he does that by calling people like you and me out of darkness into light. He calls us. In fact, the word in the New Testament that's translated church is the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out ones. We've been called out of what? Called out of darkness, called out of death, called into life. Then last week we talked about the call by the writer of the Hebrew, to the Hebrews about the people who had come out of Judaism. Remember, those were people who had come out of ritual and uh, regulations and, and religion, uh, and he called them to be together because there was an importance of gathering together for our faith. And we talked about the importance of the church to developing our faith and growing our faith and helping us to grow in our relationship with Christ. Now we turn to uh, Peter's letter, the first letter uh, that he writes. And uh, if you remember Peter when he was uh, in, the new, in, the, in the Gospels, if you had to describe, or if I had to describe Peter with one phrase, I would probably use the phrase loose cannon. Because you never knew what the guy was going to do. You never knew what he was going to say. You never knew how bold he would be and how much of a failure he'd be the next moment. He just, he was just all over the place. But he had, seemed to have a penchant for putting his foot in his mouth. But Christ got a hold of him and the Holy Spirit came to dwell with him and he was no longer a loose cannon, but a bold witness for Christ. Think the Temple Mount when he preached the gospel. Think the day of Pentecost. Pentecost. Think of his work among the Samaritans along with John. Think of his work at Joppa. And at Caesarea, as he proclaimed the gospel among the Gentiles, think of his work uh, among the Samaritans. Think of his work at Jerusalem as he tried to bring together the two sides of those rooted in Jewish tradition and those Gentiles who had come to faith. But the part of his life that I want us to focus on today is what sets this letter uh, in place. uh, Peter had gone through... uh, what is today Asia Minor, sharing in the gospel and encouraging believers in the churches there. He had gone to Corinth, and then he most likely went to Rome, uh, where he was awaiting trial and would probably get uh, executed at some point for his following Jesus. And out of his time there, he writes this letter that had been planted and had blossomed, but they also faced severe persecution. And he writes to, get this, the ecclesia the called out ones. And he writes to these churches encouraging them to maintain their commitment to Christ, to maintain faithfulness and a word to them about how they could live. And I believe his big picture idea is this. He's writing to them saying, we need the church. We as a group need to be together. We need the us if you will. And that's what he writes into. So for the sake of time, we're going to look at the text as we go through it, but there's five things I want you to see here this morning. The first one is this, Paul, Paul, excuse me, Peter says to them, we, I believe we have a unique relationship. I mean, look around the room. This is a unique group of folks. You say, really? Yeah, we got people who have got education, lots of formal education. We got some who have little, we have some who are older, we have some who are younger, we have some who are got more hair than others. We got some of us who carry more weight than others. We got a lot of variety in the room, right? It's a unique relationship we have here. But catch what he says to us that makes us even more uniqueer. If that were a word, we'd use it. Look at verse nine. But you are a chosen race. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, anytime you see the word but, you want to stop and go, okay, what was he saying before? Before this passage, Peter had been talking to the church at Asia Minor about the world from which they had been called the lives from which they'd been released. And he had spoken to them about the amazing work of Jesus, calling them out of darkness into light, just like the, the gospel is. The gospel comes, he calls, brings us out of darkness into light. We bring us into a rela- unique relationship. And he brings us not only into a relationship with God, but with each other. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There's a lot packed into this one verse, but I want you to see the big idea because I think it's fairly straightforward. God, as God called out ones, these people have been identified and consecrated as the bride of Christ, as the people of God, as the church gathered. That's us. What they needed to understand in the face of a very hostile culture was this. They were something special. You ever get up in the morning and you go, I feel bad today. This is awful today. Open First Peter, go to chapter 2, look at verse 9, look yourself in the mirror and say, but you are a what? A chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. Wow. So often we look at ourselves and we go, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I'm pitiful. I might as well eat what? Dirt. Y'all know the saying. No, we're something special. We have a unique identity that we need to grasp and understand. We are a unique group of people brought together with a higher purpose, a greater reality set apart for God. Now, what does that mean to me? First of all, I want you to see this application. Here it is. In Christ, we have a radically transformed identity. What does that mean? Stop to think about all the identities that you maybe have. I was thinking about my identities Not personalities, identities. Those are different things, okay? My identities. I'm a daddy to three knuckleheads. They're knuckleheads because their daddy's a knucklehead, okay? But I'm a daddy to three kids. I'm a husband to one woman. I'm a child. I have a dad. I had a mother, but I'm a child. I'm a brother. I've got two sisters, Oh, I'm a pastor. I'm a, a member of a church in New Boston. I'm a citizen of Jefferson Jefferson County. That was uh, eight years ago. Uh, Bowie County. Uh, I'll get here eventually. I'm a resident of Bowie County. I'm not a resident of the city of New Boston. I'm just outside the city limits. I'm a resident of Texas. I'm an American. There's a lot of ways you can identify me and say, these are my identities, same thing for you. But can I tell you something? The most important identity that I've ever had added to me is this, I am a child of God. That's the most important one. That's the one I found that day when I trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord. And it's more than just a way to conveniently describe us. It's more than that. Like the verse we prayed just a minute ago, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? If anyone is in Christ, what happens? He is a new creation. A new creature, as some translations describe it. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When I'm in Christ, because I'm in Christ, I am different than I would be had I never met Christ. Praise God. 
Stop to think about the fundamental foundational change that happened when we enter into that relationship with Jesus. Things change. We're a new creation. We go from going one direction to making a 180 degree turn and going the other direction. I can't go that way as a child of God consistently and be comfortable. Why? Because he's called me a different way. He's given me a new identity, a new name. I'm headed in a new direction. I'm no longer a sinner. I'm what? A saint. I'm no longer in darkness. I'm where? In light. I'm no longer a follower of evil, but a pursuer of the holy. In Christ, my identity has been radically changed by his presence. And if my desires don't shift in that process, something's wrong. God changes us. But catch this. You're not alone. Look around you. This is the us, right? This is the us to which you have committed your life. You go, I don't remember doing that. You did, or you wouldn't be a part of this fellowship. Why? Because you said, this is where I believe God has me to be. This is the church that God wants me to connect with. This is the place where my gifts are going to be plugged in. This is where my abilities are going to be shown, and this is where I'm going to serve. This is my fellowship. This is my church. This is our church. Together, we work in this unique relationship. Second, we have a unique Mission. Look at verse 9, the second half. What are, we, what are we here for? I don't know about you. When you get a new identity, you want to say, why am I here? What is it all about? What am I for? Why do I have this new identity? Look at last part of nine, verse 9. That you may what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, that's a fancy way of describing what we're about. It says, a friend of mine likes to say that's a 50-cent word. 50 cent phrase. Peter makes the task of, takes, makes the task in the second half of verse 9 plain. He says, here it is, to proclaim the gospel to everyone. To proclaim the excellencies, the greatness, the goodness of our God who called us where? Out of darkness and into light. But what's he talking about? He's talking about the new identity, but I think it's broader than that. He's referring to the forgiveness of sin, a calling to serve in the kingdom, and a better direction in life. And our mission, my friends, is plain. We're here to declare the excellent reality of a spiritual deliverance effected by Jesus. That's what we're all about. Well, I thought we were here to get together in fellowship. Great side benefit. I thought we were here to eat. We're Baptist. That's a great side fellowship. I thought we were here to... No. We're here to do one thing, the most important thing, which is to what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why the church exists. That's why we are part of something called the church. He's talking to a group of people who had come out of an utterly pagan context where they wanted to get their own way. By the way, that's the human condition. That's the world we live in. See, we really do think if we can get our heart's desire, no matter how foolish they are, we'll be happy. Have you ever noticed that? It doesn't work. God created us for something greater, living in fellowship with him and serving in his greater kingdom by doing the mission of the church. This leads me to this thought. Here it is real quickly. In Christ, we find the truly abundant life. You want to find an abundant life? Don't win the lottery. Don't go on a cruise every quarter. Don't marry the right girl finally. Find Jesus and begin to live for him. People are always looking for the next experience, aren't they? What, what, where are we going next? Where's your next vacation? What's your next activity? What's your next thing? Where are you going next? What's your, what's your, what, what are you going to do? Can I tell you something? Those are all fine and dandy, but that's not life. 
We hope through all that stuff that something will click. We'll have purpose and meaning. We'll find happiness. We'll find peace. We'll find content. We'll find set. Listen, you can go from activity to activity, from relationship to relationship, from church to church, from town to town, from marriage to marriage, looking for something. But until you find Jesus, you won't find the abundant life because that's where it's found. Remember what Jesus said about this. He said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Why did Jesus come? I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. You want the abundant life? Get hooked up with Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you want to find life, embrace the mission of the King of Kings. Answer his call to the identity that he has for you, but also begin to live in the abundant life he has for you. And I believe one of the best places to do that is in a local church. You go, but those people are crazy. Absolutely they are. I've been waiting to call y'all crazy. You know how I know that? Because I'm nuts. Yeah, you're going, we knew that. I got you, okay? If you're going to try to find the perfect church out there, can I tell you something? You won't find it. And by the way, if you get to the place that you think is the perfect church, you'll probably mess it up. But together we have an abundant life as we love each other, as we walk together in fellowship and have this unique mission he has for us. Third, we have a unique identity. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Now, as the church called out to have this unique relationship, unique mission, we also have a unique identity. For those who have gained this relationship and this new mission, we come together with a unique reality. Part of our unique identity is this. We are a people of God gathered out of a pagan, foreign, hostile environment. That's the people to whom Peter is writing. They were called out of a pagan, hostile, foreign environment. And what God did with them in the gospel was to make, take ugly and make it beautiful, to take dark and make it light, to take lost and make it found. In fact, the word that's translated people in this, this text is the Greek word laos, which carries a broader meaning than just anybody. It carries the meaning of, you're going to be so shocked when I tell you, of the called out ones of God. That's the church. Now, the concept of God was pretty common in Asia Minor. It wasn't something different, but their meaning of the word God was quite different. I want you to catch this, because in the ancient world, you would treat God or the goddess or the goddesses or the gods you worshipped as more like a, a lucky charm or a talisman that you would carry to bring you good luck. You know, some people try to treat God like that, you know, but God's not a lucky charm. He's much greater than that. And so what Peter is doing is speaking to a group of people that they hear the word God and they go, oh yeah, he's my lucky charm. I carry him around in my pocket. I pull him out when I need help and I rub it. And there's a, no, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is one who loves you intimately. The God of the Bible is one who knows you and cares for you. The God of the Bible is one who carries you through whatever comes in life by having people around you. And then God is, is the one who holds us in love. And the way God normally does that, does that is this. You're going to mess up the word, just go with it, right? The way he does that is this, through his local church. I can't tell you how many times over the last years, whatever it is at this point, that I've heard people say this, and you have too. 
I don't know how people go through losing a loved one. You want to finish the sentence with me? Without the church. Having people come alongside to love us. Can I tell you something? Yes, it's them loving you, but you know who it really is loving you? It's God loving you through them. That's the church. That's this identity that's different, that's, that's unique. This, this idea that he's, he's with us. Part of our unique identity reveals the love of God through us. Because we're a people called out and gathered, therefore we ought to be, now get this, we ought to be the most loving, the most compassionate, and the most welcoming group found on the planet. Why? They stood on the love and truth of God. This world's not my home, but the church gathered shows me God's presence. So this leads me to this thought. Where God's people gather, God is present. Over in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, uh, by the way, was also in Asia Minor. He, he says this about the identity of the church. He said this in, in verse 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in you all. The big idea here is the church of the living God actually lives unto the Lord the outcome when we do that, is truly amazing. And the reality, my friends, is this. Unity is the natural, or should I say supernatural, outcome of a people of God listening to the Spirit of God living as the body of Christ. Where God's people gather, he's here. And listen, if we're all listening to the same Lord, the outcome ought to be this, harmonious and unified. I'm convinced every time a local congregation faces turmoil, it's because part of the body is not listening to the king, or worse, doesn't know the king. See, the identity of the church is wrapped up in listening to the voice of the master Jesus, followed by going where he goes, going where he leads. And if we do that, we find God brings unity of purpose and, and peace to the fellowship. So we have a unique relationship, a unique mission, unique identity. We also have a unique blessing. Look at the first part of verse, or the second half of verse 10. Once, people in Asia Minor, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter further reminds the church in Asia Minor about their unique blessing. What is it? They have received God's mercy. Now, sometimes we take the word mercy and go, yeah, yeah, mercy, that's great, cool. Got it. Move on. Hang in there with me because the mercy of God is a huge belief that we need to grasp. It's a singular blessing given to just those who have been called out to form the church. You see, before they met Jesus in faith, the concept of mercy was foreign to them. But what is mercy? At least in the biblical sense. Let me give you a definition. One writer puts it this way. He described mercy here. It is God extending patience to those who deserve to be punished. It's God extending patience to those who deserve to be punished. Those of us who are parents, we can probably relate to that, right? You ever have a kid that you just wanted to remodel? Yeah. My mother picked up a phrase from my grandmother, from my nana. She'd say, we're going to take him to the woodshed. 
My mother never owned a woodshed, but she always talked about going to the woodshed. I'm going, we don't live in town. We live on a neighborhood lot. We don't have a woodshed. What are you talking about, woman? I never said that. I thought it. What's she talking about? I always knew what she was talking about. She was ready to take me and tan my, right? But she would do what? Show mercy. That's what God does for us. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God doesn't just go, okay, first sin, you're done. He has mercy. And this, Jesus talks about this in in Luke chapter 6. He said this, be merciful even as your father is merciful. As God is merciful, we ought to be merciful. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to reflect his presence, reflect his grace, reflect his presence and work in the world. And his call to his followers is to extend his grace to those who deserve judgment. You know, part of the beauty of a local church is we get to know a lot about each other. Let me tell you what, coming up on eight years, I have learned all kinds of amazing family connections in this church. I'm still learning them. It's fun. Every once in a while they'll say, well, you know, so-and-so is married to so-and-so, is married to so-and-so, so-and-so, such-and-such. And I go, really? I thought they hated each other. They do. Oh, okay, got it. Y'all with me? And yet we still somehow love each other. It's amazing. Part of the beauty of a local church is while we know each other, we get to reflect the grace of Jesus even in moments of tension like that. And instead of lashing out and trying to destroy or to bring judgment, we extend Christ's grace and peace. How? By mercy. That's not always easy on our own, but the presence of Jesus makes it possible. You know, Jesus even included this idea in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 7. He said this, blessed Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. If you really want to receive and experience God's mercy, guess what you get to be? Not just a receiver of his mercy, but a transmitter of his mercy. Let me tell you what, I love the thought of being forgiveness by for, having, of being forgiven by God, don't you? But I sometimes struggle with trying to turn around and forgive those who offend and attack at times. But that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we've got a unique relationship, unique mission, unique identity, unique blessing, but we also live with a unique approach to life. Look at verse 11 and 12. Beloved, can I stop right there a second? When I moved out of my parents' house, I ended up in in Tyler and uh, um, I, I wanted to get involved in a church in the community I lived in, so I went to a church on the south side of Tyler called um, Colonial Hills. And Brother Johnny was the pastor of that church. He was an old, old man. He was about 50. You know, when you're 21, 50 sure seems old, right? And this man found out that I'd sensed a call to ministry, and he just took me in and kind of adopted me as a second dad. And he loved to use that word for the people in the fellowship of that church. These are the beloved. I think it affected the way he looked at people because he didn't see them as people. He saw them as beloved. He saw him as God saw them. He's the first man that ever gave me a big old kiss on my cheek when I left to go to Baylor. 
And he prayed God's blessing on me. Freaked me out to no end, this man kissing me. But anyway, he showed his love. Beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to what? He's talking to a group of people who have been called out of their communities, who've been called out of the darkness they had been born in, that they've been raised in, they lived in. He said, I urge you as what? Sojourners and exiles. So he's telling this is not your home. You know what? This is not our home. If you think you're going to live in Bowie County the rest of your life, you're not. You got a place that's going to be your home way longer than here. You're a sojourner. You're an exile. What are we supposed to do? A couple of things. We are to what? Abstain from the passions of the flesh which rage war, which wage war against your soul. What he's telling this group of people at this church in, in Asia Minor is this. Don't be driven by your emotion. Don't be driven by feelings. But let the Spirit of God live in you. Let the Spirit of God lead you. And there's, there's a place for emotion. There's a place for feeling. But the Spirit of the living God is way more important. There's a place for those things. And as parts of the body of Christ, the church, we need to learn to be subject to, excuse me, to learn to subject our passions of the flesh to the greater purpose of the Spirit. We're going to apply this in a minute, so hang on to the thought. But we are here to serve together and discover His purpose. The second thing He tells us is in verse 12. He says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. I got to tell you, these two verses almost became a sermon unto themselves this week because there's so much here. And I know what time it is, and I'm aware of what we have to do because, you know, we got to get out at noon or the world will end. But I want you to hear this. We are called to live honorably in the world. Peter called on the church to live in such a way that they were viewed as honorable. What he's saying, and we're going to apply it to say, this opens a direction that we're not going to be able to explore fully. But suffice it to say, the interactions of the church with the world itself affect the perceptions of the church. He's telling them, you've got to live in this world, but you've got to do it in a way that's what? Honorable. So that, third, when they speak against you as evildoers... Wait, we're talking about God's people. They're going to talk about them as evil. See, the world loves to see what's good as evil and the, what's evil as good. They turn it all around. They've got their, their poles mixed up. They're all wonky, okay? But they look at you and go, oh, you're living for Jesus? Oh, you're wrong. You're evil. You're, moral. you're immoral. They would, instead, they're supposed to be able to see in them your good deeds and glorify God. So we have to show them the new life of God. The impact is made. Not in this room, but out there. So let me apply it real quick. If you want to see God move, that's a big if. Some of us go, I don't care if God moves or not. I just want to go to church and go home. That's it. I'm done. But if you really want to see God move, it's going to have to begin with who? With us. Not me, us. You go, well, it has to begin with me. If you want to get real personal, you could do that. But I think it's bigger than that. There's a truth I want you to see about the local church here. How we love one another in concrete ways makes a difference in the world in which we live. When local churches remain divided, they become ineffective at being the body of Christ. When local churches hold animosity among themselves, they find little progress toward the reality of being the revelation of Jesus to the world. Yet when they hear 
when they all hear the voice of God leading them to unity and peace in Jesus, God's able to do good things. That's why I brought that text from Philippians 1, because I love this prayer. Paul prays for the church at Philippi, a church that from what we could tell didn't have a lot of issues to deal with, but this was his prayer for them. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the Lord, glory and praise of God. Let me tell you something. There's, there's a prayer here that I think we ought to be praying for our local fellowship, for us, because I believe God is still God and God still wants to work through local churches, even like us, to accomplish great things. But it's going to take us deciding that we're going to let God's mercy show through us. We're going to let his grace flow through us. We're going to let his love fill us. How does that start? By knowing Jesus. You know the answer to that one, didn't you? If you don't know Jesus, you can't have any of this stuff happen in your life. So I've got to ask you this morning, have you personally experienced Christ? Have you come to a moment where you said, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I need you. I need forgiveness. I need your mercy released in my life. Do you remember the moment you gave your heart to Christ? Have you really experienced it? Maybe you have not even a relationship with God yet. Maybe, maybe you need to ask yourself those questions. Do you remember the moment you confessed him? Do you remember the moment when he came into your heart? Is there evidence that he's at work in your life? For many of you, you go, yeah, I remember that moment. I remember where I was. I was at Bible school, local church, making a difference in your life. Look at that. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to walk away from a sin so he can work in your life anew. What's your next step? What's God have for you next? Let's pray together. Father God, we pray for those in this room who have decisions of some sort they need to make. Maybe it's public. Maybe it's private. But each of those are not with anyone in this room particularly, but with you. For you to speak into our lives and answer the call to follow you or the answer the call to renew our relationship with